0: It's not good enough to be physically healthy. We actually all need to have a good sense of meaning and purpose. Building your mental resilience or your emotional intelligence is exactly the same physiological process as learning that language. It's just about strengthening a pathway or building a new pathway in your brain. By creating this imagery that you look at repeatedly, you prime your brain to notice things that are related to those goals. Welcome to the Debunking Your Growth Mindset podcast with Sean McCambridge. In this podcast, we will unpack practical ways to help you grow and build on your current mindset and challenge old habits so you can see the potential that's within us all and learn how to get out of your own way.
1: Thanks again for joining us. We're about to transition into part two of Peak Brain Performance with Dr. Tara Ward. I know for certain, given that uh, I was part of the podcast, that there's value added right to the very end. And in actual fact, you know, some of the things we finish with are super impactful, super interesting. So, listen into the whole podcast. And all I would say is, you know, if you enjoy it and you've got some key takeaways, feel free to pass on to those that might benefit as well or might have an interest. So, thanks again for joining us. There's a lot of talk about people becoming the sum of the five people they spend the most time with and those sorts of adages. So can you talk to us about the tangible benefits and or pitfalls of those you spend the most time with, you know, looking at that sort of contagious effect or, you know, maybe just touch on the cortisol impacts yeah. of, uh, of spending time around certain people? Yes,
0: yeah, so I think most people would agree that there's a phenomenon, you know, we've talked about it for a long time called um, social contagion. Um, but the neuroscience does actually now back up that there's um, there are some physiological or biological reasons that this um, affects us so much. so there are there's research that shows that if your peer group, um, if somebody gets divorced in your peer group, then you're more likely to get divorced. So it's that's not it's not like it's catching. It's just that if you have you know some some issues in your relationship, but you're in a social group where it's really unacceptable to get divorced, then you're more likely to just stay stuck and um, not act on the fact that there are issues. But if suddenly someone that you know gets divorced, it makes it more socially acceptable. And that's why it's likely to lead to a different outcome than you might have. So, and it's the same with obesity. There's, again, research that shows if um, your closest peer group has has members in it that are obese, then you're more likely to become obese. So, you know, it's less likely that you're going to be the one person that's overweight in a group of friends. It's much more likely if if that's how the closest group of friends are. So that's a social contagion aspect. What the neuroscience shows is that the stress hormone cortisol that becomes raised when we feel stressed. And, and that stress can be for, you know, any, all sorts of reasons. It can be short-term, it can be long-term. But the most dangerous type of stress is long-term stress that we suppress. So, you know, it can often be, you know, I've worked with a lot of chief financial officers who, who know what's going on in the business in terms of the numbers before other people do. And it's not always appropriate to discuss this for some length of time, which means that they're suppressing often bad news. And it's, it seems amazing how people say, when I walk into their office, I leave feeling totally drained and, you know, my shoulders are drooping and I just feel negative after being around certain people. I think we've also all experienced that when there's actually a physical draining effect of being around certain people. So we do believe that um, for the same, through the same mechanism that women who live or work closely together, synchronize their menstrual cycles that there's a contagious effect of of the stress hormone. And this is very um, fundamental to evolution. So, for example, in a troop of gorillas, the levels of the stress hormone in the silverback gorilla affect the other gorillas more than gorillas of equal status. So the most senior person needs to be able to deal with their stress really well because otherwise that leaks and affects other people and it literally physically affects your, your cortisol levels in your own body so it has a physiological effect so we need to again raise from non-conscious to conscious how stressed we are and have really good outlets for our stress either somebody that we trust that we can speak to or going back to the journaling and because it's a physical hormone that you know leaks out of our body the using aerobic exercise we can sweat cortisol out of our bodies so Yeah, there's definitely an effect between people, but the thing that we're responsible for is our own stress levels. So it's both about managing our stress and just being aware of who we're around most of the time.
1: Uh, Fantastic answer once more. So I want to transition across to uh, one of your superpowers is coaching, uh, amongst other things, and you coach a lot of high-powered, super-successful people across the globe. But it's my understanding that uh, the two key areas, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, that you tend to coach on the most is emotional intelligence and resilience. If that is true, what do you find yourself coaching on those two key items the most?
0: It is true, but I sort of want to just clarify that based on my background, which is that I was a, a psychiatric doctor and I started coaching around the time of the global financial crisis. So, it's probably partly because of where my my strengths lie, but I certainly get enough work in that area that it makes you know, it, makes <laughs> it the, the majority of what I do. So I think the emotional intelligence piece, actually, over the last 12 years that I've been coaching, I've seen that improve. So the sorts of things that I was dealing with 12, 10, 8 years ago, you know, with people really becoming very agitated in the workplace, you know, causing a lot of emotional destruction around them, I'm, I'm happy to say that I'm seeing a lot less of that. It's, it's The work I do on mastering emotions now is much more nuanced than it used to be. However, the work on mental resilience is, seems to be needed more and more, which, given that we had a global crisis sort of 10, 12 years ago, you'd like to think that that is reducing, but it's definitely not. So the number of people of all ages that I see with burnout, with mental health issues, with, um, you know, really struggling to cope with the workload and the work-life balance is concerning. I think that's where the neuroscience really comes in, because it marries together the psychology and the physiology. And I'm very uh, strong on the fact that the physical, mental, emotional and spiritual states have to be aligned it's not good enough to be physically healthy but you know suffering with stress and mental overload and feeling that your integrity is is damaged by what you're doing we actually all need to have a good sense of meaning and purpose to be able to articulate and manage our emotions and understand other people's emotions to keep our mental processes you know healthy and front of mind and to be physically healthy if any one of those is compromised we see problems in all four of those areas so i think the fact that i'm in quite a unique position having been a doctor and being a neuroscientist to to bring those together and to explain to you know really successful well educated people who might be compromising on one of those areas that it's actually about building pathways to improve your performance in those areas it's not the intangibles like be more compassionate or you know don't get so stressed it's you can do really tangible physical things to to work on those i think that's the reason that that i'm working so much in those areas
1: so that's a great segue into the next question uh, I wanted to ask, can you provide an overview of the process of strengthening those pathways? Uh, and you know just a bit of context, I think the metaphor or the the example you used was that notion of the time to learn a language last week. And then also I guess there's a whether it's a fallacy or a notion that isn't completely true, that twenty one days to form a habit. So can you sort of talk about that process and timing around strengthening pathways?
0: So I'm really glad that you mentioned the metaphor of learning a language because that's something that's really easy for people to understand. If you now wanted to learn a new, totally new language, you know that that would probably take you up to six months, that you'd have to practice a lot. You might even need a teacher or you could use one of those language apps. I'm a big fan of Duolingo. Building your mental resilience or your emotional intelligence is exactly the same physiological process as learning that language. It's it's just about strengthening a pathway or building a new pathway in your brain for that capability. And it depends upon the process for sustainable behavior change, which is raising your awareness of what it is that you need to change or you want to learn, focusing your attention on opportunities to practice this new or desired behavior, deliberate and repetitive practice of the new desired behavior, and then being held accountable to reaching certain goals. So, you know, I think it's very easy if we just do it by ourselves to say, yes, I really want to learn Mandarin. But if I haven't, you know, done a certain amount by three months' time, I can just move the goalposts. But if you've got someone like me saying, well, you said you would have, you know, got up to chapter eight of the book by three months' time, why haven't you then? (laughs) you know even if it just opens up that conversation of why you haven't done something that's that's a good learning as well but basically if you think about any change in the brain is exactly the same process as learning a language then if you said that you were going to use duolingo to learn spanish i think you could improve your spanish over a period of time to being probably good enough to go on holiday to a spanish speaking country and just about get the food and you know The hotel room that you needed. If you got a Spanish teacher and you had lessons once a week, my guess would be that in six months' time, your capability for speaking Spanish would be much higher. And so it's kind of the same. Equally, if you then regularly spoke Spanish with your neighbor, regularly went on holiday to Spanish-speaking countries, you would maintain that language in your brain. If you went on one holiday and then never went to a Spanish-speaking country again... That ability in your brain would sort of wither away, and it would get replaced by other activities that your brain's doing more. And that's why this whole, you know, twenty-one days to reach a habit thing is just is so contentious because it kind of depends what you're trying to do. I've also heard sixty-six days to embed a habit, and I I, I wouldn't personally want to put a number on it. I think it depends how difficult it is. So, for instance, you you know, drinking more water. You've already achieved that and in another week or a few weeks, you'll be doing that without even thinking about it. The emotional intelligence and the mental resilience things that I work with people on take six, nine, 12 months to really master Um, and you can see why because they're just a much more complex and sophisticated task in the brain.
1: Great answer. So I want to circle on to vision boards. Can you explain briefly what are these and why are these so powerful?
0: Yeah, so um, this seems it seems very unscientific, but <laughs> I did. <laughs> so you know, I think sometimes people think it's a bit surprising that I would, would write about them. But out of personal interest, I did I did all the research to see. I, I have personally been doing vision boards for for nearly ten years, and so I looked into the science of them because for me, I have to understand how something works in the brain to really believe it. I can't just do things because people think it's you know say it's a good idea or. Even if they've had success with it before, I, I just want to know a little bit more than that. So what vision boards do is so basically what they are is a collage, preferably made by hand, although you can also do them on your devices now. But it's better if you actually get a stack of magazines, um, have a, you know, a pin board or a piece of card, and you look for images, whether it's you know, real or metaphorical, that represent the things that you really want to achieve in life. And again, there's an entire chapter on how to make this in the book, so I won't go into the details, but you create a collage that holds images of what your goals are. And you would look at this board, I would say at least twice a day, but most importantly, just before you go to sleep, because it imprints those images onto your subconscious. And the reason that vision boards work is through through two processes in the brain, selective filtering and value tagging. Selective filtering is because we're bombarded with so much information every day, everything that we hear, smell, see, everyone we meet, every memory we recall, everything we smell, our brain naturally has to filter out most of that data so that we can focus on the things that we need to survive and thrive. By creating this imagery that you look at repeatedly, you prime your brain to notice things that are related to those goals and therefore to grasp opportunities that might otherwise have passed you by. And so value tagging is what the brain does, where it tags in order of importance, the things that we have selectively filtered. So when you put those two together, um, it's so easy to go through life with your head down, focusing on the short term and not really having the time to step back and think about what you want in five, ten years. You know, or more years' time or the big picture goals that you have. So these images just help you to really keep that front of mind. Um, I do say that you know the science absolutely says you, you can't create a vision board and look at it twice a day and expect all of your dreams to come true. You have to be doing things to move towards those goals on a very regular basis. And that's why I call them action boards rather than vision boards. So the subconscious priming on the brain of imagery is very powerful, but I believe that without the appropriate action that it's not it's not gonna change your life. But with the appropriate action, I can attest to the fact that it is is actually very powerful and life-changing.
1: So talk to us about you. You talked earlier about journaling. Uh, Was journaling a positive thing in terms of peak brain performance? Can you sort of just share some uh, aspects in that regard?
0: Yeah, so journaling itself has, the you know, minimally it has the effect of getting just the emotions and things that are going round and round in our mind just, you know, off our mind and, and out on paper. Either speaking out loud or journaling helps to get sort of issues off our mind. Um, rather, th- otherwise, your brain keeps bringing them to the front of your mind because your brain sees them as unfinished tasks. Because they're and that you know, therefore, they're things that stress you out. Like we talked about with the cortisol. Personally, I have found that looking back over your journal entries is really enlightening because that's where you see the same thought processes, the same behaviors the same decisions playing out over and over again and you know when you see that in your own handwriting you've got to do something about it it's very easy to remember things differently to how they actually are but when you when you see them written down you know whether it's not listening to your intuition whether it's what happens to you physically when you're stressed or jet lagged looking back and actually seeing what you've recorded and then noticing that it's repeating is is you know it's an invitation for you to change something. So to me, that's that's the real benefits of journaling.
1: Okay, and also you talk about building pathways. So if there's a certain area that I want to grow or develop in, journaling on those key items does that help me become more conscious of those key areas uh, if I'm documenting that daily?
0: Yeah. So journaling is is exactly what you've just said. It's about raising your your consciousness or awareness of, um, either barriers that are holding you back or, you know, where your superpowers are basically. So yeah, it's absolutely, it's about raising awareness. Gotcha.
1: Gotcha. So I want to talk now about, uh, another motion that you've, you've discussed is that, uh, the impact of the Tetris effect and the impact of the content that we're consuming. So can you sort of give us Mm. a quick overview of the Tetris effect?
0: Yeah, so this really relates back to the vision boards because um, if you remember playing Tetris on your Game Boy in the, I, think, I guess it was the 80s or 90s, <laughs> <laughs> which I do, which I did. Um, I remember playing Tetris. I probably wasn't allowed to play it till like you know really close to bedtime. But even then, when you closed your eyes to go to bed, you could see the little bricks falling because you basically imprinted that image on your subconscious, like I said, a vision board does and that's why it's so important to look at your vision board last thing at night because the tetris effect is the psychological effect of priming your brain with an image in that state of going from being awake to being asleep that's a very powerful time to affect your subconscious so basically what you see just before you go to sleep stays you know has prominence in your brain overnight so a vision board is a good thing to expose your brain to just before you go to bed. But so, so for instance, the major thing in terms of content that we view or consume that neuroscientists would say is bad to look at just before you go to bed is the news. So, um, and I, and I want to be very careful because I have lots of friends that are journalists and I'm, you know, I think what (laughs) they do is, is so important, but in the UK and Australia, the news tends to be much more bad than good. And so what you're doing is exposing your brain to the story that the world is a dangerous place, that there's not a, there's not enough out there for you and me and everyone else. So basically we're in competition and that it's survival of the fittest and that if somebody else does well, that could be bad for me. That That's the story that we can really grow in our brain without being conscious of if we're constantly looking at bad news. We know, for example, that people who have no connection to New York, who repeatedly watched images of the Twin Towers falling during the 9-11 terrorist attack, got PTSD. So that, I think, is a shocking revelation of how much the impact of what we view and consume has on our psyche. Um, And something that I'm really passionate about is is trying to overturn that negative gearing of the brain towards abundant thinking, because we can choose to believe that there's enough out there for all of us, that if I'm successful, other people can also be successful, that it's not not a us or them kind of game. Um, Unfortunately, if you look at the world at the moment, psychosocially and geopolitically, it's definitely become, uh, you know, it's either I survive or you do kind of thing. And I, I do think that, that that's a conscious choice and we need to be very careful about what we expose our brains to.
1: Notwithstanding what we've already touched on on that uh, answer and prior, what are the other adverse impacts of too much time on our devices? I, I think you Talk about they can be a a tool for good or or maybe, you know, there's a downside to too much time on devices. Uh, And I've heard different things about the impact on your brainwaves when you're um, maybe playing games or on your phone. What can you share in that regard?
0: Yeah, so like you said, we've kind of covered quite a lot of it. But I I always think, you know, if you've you've got children or you think of your younger self, then, you know, what advice would you give them? Because we tend to not look after ourselves as well as we do. You know our children or our, our pets, for example. So basically, the effects of three G, four G, five G, Wi Fi, um, and just you know the sort of the telecom tower waves to our phones. We don't know enough about the effects of those on our sleep patterns, for example. But we we know that they're probably not good. So that's that's one thing. It's the effect on sleep. We've talked about the blue light the major other thing that you're talking about is just our addiction to our devices. So whether it's news, whether it's work emails, whether it's social media, we're checking our devices up to 200 times a day. And, you know, anything that's a like or a follower or a good, you know, sort of good news email is seen in the brain as a reward. And that releases a bit of dopamine in the brain. And we want more and more of that reward. So we keep looking for it. Every time the phone pings, it, it, we think it could be something good. But obviously, there's the other side of it, which is that it could be something bad. And so, you know, we can go into this survival state where um, we see constant threats to our safety, um, and we need to be vigilant on our devices to try to, you know, preempt those. Um, so apart from just the the physical effects of the light, um, and the time that you take up, um, looking at your device, there are also unfortunately, especially for uh, children and adolescents, the negative effects of social media. So this goes back to what you were saying about what we view and consume. We know that girls, the more times a day girls look at social media, the more likely they are to have a body dysmorphic disorder or an eating disorder because of the unreal images that, that they're exposed to and then aspire to. So this is actually a massive topic. I think we've just touched on each of the different areas in which it can have an effect on us, a negative effect. So I just want to, you know, like like you've said, I you know I, I teach at MIT. I'm I'm a scientist, so I'm I'm really into technology, and I do believe that it can be used for good. So there are lots of time saving um, apps like WeTransfer and Slack and things that, and um, Trello that can be useful for work. I also think that if we're very if we work on being grounded and we are very boundaried about what we look at on social media, it can be a good thing. But I'm a big fan of doing digital detoxes. So, you know, that can be anything from a day, a weekend, an email-free holiday, um, all the way up to the the most I've ever done is a month over Christmas and New Year on holiday with an out-of-office on my emails that says I'm doing a digital detox till the middle of January And not looking at any social media and you would not believe how much time and space you create when you do that. And also how all your aches and pains that you get in your hands and your arms and your shoulders and your neck just go away. So I think I'd love it if your listeners would try that.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's fantastic. I experienced that same phenomenon Last year, going to Christmas, I had a really sore shoulder or towards my my, my neck and painful, really, really painful. Went away for, I think, two weeks, whatever it was. Decided to spend a lot less time on my phone. Mm. By the time I got back, it was dramatically better. And that's, that's the only tangible explanation. I did no therapy during that period of time or anything else like that. That was the only difference.
0: Wow. I'm really, really glad to hear you say that. Yeah.
1: Definitely connect with that. So it's a timely reminder. Um, and I just wrote down boundaries and, and detox time uh, just to remind me uh, of the importance of that. So I think it's uh, a, a great answer mm. to, that, uh, to that question. So when you're in the end, and I'm certainly mindful of your time, you've given up a bunch of it and you've got to go exploring Sydney today. So that's very, very important um, with your husband. So uh, tell me, mm. what are your core philosophies other than what we've touched on for living uh, a happy and successful life?
0: Um, so, what I always find myself saying to people is, try to do as many of these things that we've talked about: sleep enough, eat right, drink enough water, you know, move, get some exercise, do some mindfulness. But don't stress about it because it's the stress that will kill you. And you know, a lot of people that know me well often say that you know you're not obsessive about these things, and that's what's really noticeable. You also, you know, have fun and. And to me, you know, the really important thing is that is that balance with family. So I, you know, I, I do have a very strong work ethic and I work really hard and I travel a lot for my work, but I'm very, very boundaryed about my personal time and my family time. So I think to me that not getting stressed and the, you know, remaining grounded and boundaryed about your work-life balance is the key to a happy and successful life. I think you have a story to share about that as well, don't you?
1: yeah' just in a, in a different context. Um, I was over in Bali once upon a time and to be honest, I was over there just sort of uh, recharging re- and and I'd come off a, a fairly biz- busy you know to be honest probably stressful period of time and I went up there just to recharge and I spoke to this Balinese taxi driver and it dawned on me that this guy was particularly happy and a lot of the Balinese people that I've met were genuinely happy their smiles were very contagious and real. Authentic, and I just had to ask. I said, "Why, why, and how are you, uh, you and so many people I see so happy?" You know, forming the hypothesis that, you know, the, I think the average uh, wage at that time was about two hundred dollars a month. They worked six days a week. They worked, you know, plenty. They didn't seem to have much abundance in their life. Uh, to which he replied, "We pray three times a day." And I said, "What do you, what do you, what do you, what do you, what do you pray for?" And he said, that basically translated to me, gratitude. He was, uh, we pray that we're grateful for, you know, my family, food, uh, my community roof over here head all these things so were the, they were doing that three times a day so I thought uh, tick wow. that's obviously got to be a big uh, learning and then I said uh, I left my passport and wallet you know on the bench or whatever there before w- why did no one take that because I thought that might have been an opportunity for someone to take you know the, the wallet full of money and all yeah. that sort of stuff And he he sort of said, within our beliefs or or religion, you know, basically it translated to to karma. We don't do to others that we don't want to happen to us. And that was a simplistic answer. And I just sort of thought to myself, if you only practice two things in life, if it's gratefulness and karma that goes a hell of a long way to being happy. Mm So it's amazing the things you can learn from different people, and that was just the Balinese taxi driver. So I think it's always interesting to ask that question of different people, what their philosophies are on living a successful and happy life. That, to me, stood out, and was a particularly timely moment for me. Uh, I sort of gleaned that learning from that individual, which I thought was great.
0: Do you know that's that's absolutely given me goosebumps because I know that you've started reading my book and so you know that I grew yes. up in, in London in, in England, um, but my parents are of Indian heritage, so that uh, we're you know, we're we're a Hindu family just like the Balinese. And I actually struggled to reconcile those two different lives that I had, and that's you know that was actually a problem for me growing up because i had these hindu philosophies in the background but i i went to school and i wanted to be like my friends and it was actually when i studied the neuroscience that i found and that's why i looked at the research between uh, behind vision boards and gratitude and and um, you know my that you know we do believe in karma yes i had to kind of find a way to bring those two things together they seemed like such opposites yeah. but neuroscience actually was a thing for me that made them almost like two poles that were attracted and made sense, finally made sense. And that's why I felt compelled to write the book. So I, I actually can't believe that you're telling a story that to me brings those, you know, those two things together.
1: Yeah, well, well that's fantastic. I didn't uh, think I'd be sharing anything that you would uh, maybe learn or get insights from because I've got so much from you. But, yeah, I just sort of felt like uh, that was uh, it was just such a simple answer uh, to such a complex scenario. Mm. So, uh, so that's fantastic. So I'm glad uh, that's resonated at your end. So in my desire to get everything out of out of the stone that is your uh, reservoir of knowledge. <laughs> have we left anything out? I'm sure we have. But is there anything else that some of the most successful people do that we haven't touched on today that the listeners can benefit from?
0: Yeah, I actually think, funnily enough, it's something that we've just come to, which is, um, you know, something that's that's now proven by neuroscience research, but is actually based on on an ancient Eastern philosophy, which is transcendental meditation. Mm. Um, I would say that of my hedge fund clients, which I would put at the top of being people who are obsessed with having an edge over everyone else that the transcendental meditation for 10 to 20 minutes once to twice a day. So, you know, building up to 20 minutes twice a day is probably the key differentiator. And we were talking earlier about Tim Ferriss, and in his book, Tools of Titans, he says that 80% of the most successful people in the world have a regular mindfulness practice. I discussed with you last week that there's a study in the U.S. Marines that shows that Marines who did 12 minutes of mindfulness meditation daily had increased resilience on the battlefield compared to Marines that did less than 12 minutes or nothing. So I had, you know, I recommend the apps like Headspace, Calm and Budify. Took me nine to 10 months of using the app and the earphones um, until I didn't need the app and the earphones to guide me anymore. So there's no, you know, shame in in using them for a long time. I was doing, I was managing to do my 12 minutes um, on public transport in London. Um, My next goal is to get myself up to the 20 minutes twice a day of transcendental meditation and all that means is that you use a mantra and we've talked about catchphrases and mantras already on this podcast um i'd really like to finish by saying that especially because you've just said i didn't think you'd learn something from (laughs) me which you know i always always feel i can learn something from everyone that i meet and i love meeting people is that doing a podcast in australia was is actually on my vision board and you've made it come true so i really wanted to thank you
1: fantastic Fantastic. So, now that's uh, that's awesome, and it's uh, it's great that you sort of talk about transcendental meditation for those other than what you touched on. I stumbled across that through the current Australian cricket coach Justin Langer. He spoke at our conference in 2012, and he talked about this notion of transcendental meditation. And I thought, what is this stuff? But I thought, you know what, I'm gonna hey. I'm gonna give it a crack. And uh, myself and my business partner Robbie, uh, we went away and did a course, and so did our wives. Uh, it was just a pretty simplistic course to give you the framework. But yeah, amazing. It's had a a huge impact on me. And in the beginning, I sort of thought, is this just a waste of 40 minutes a day? Um, but no, for sure it's had um, a, a massive impact. So you're right, Tim Ferriss talks about it in the Tool of Titans and obviously you're talking about some of the science mm. beneath that and I think you also talked about the practicality that can be done on the tube in your case or on the plane or whenever you get that time. So it's, uh, mm. it is a, it is a practice that you can, uh, you can undertake in, in various environments. So just before we wrap up, can you just give the listeners a bit of detail about how to find out more about you, just a quick summary of your books, anything else that might be pertinent as a resource. And, of course, we'll put that in the show notes. But can you just do a quick wrap there?
0: Oh, thanks so much. Yeah, so I am very active on Twitter and Instagram. I'm Tara Swart on Twitter and Doctor with a dr Tara Swart on Instagram. And my website is taraswart.com. That's for the coaching and consulting services. But the thing that I'm most excited to share at the moment and one of the main reasons that I'm in Australia right now is – my new book, The Source, Open Your Mind, Change Your Life, which has been out in Australia since March, published by Penguin Australia. It's a bestseller in the UK. It's being translated in 35 territories around the world. And I recently got an endorsement from Deepak Chopra. So it's yeah. it's my life's work. I'm very excited about it. And um, I'm thrilled that you're reading it. And I hope that a lot more people in Australia get to read it as well.
1: Now, fantastic. Well, started reading it and and loving it um, so far, so I can't wait to explore some of the things we've talked about today in greater detail. But uh, it's my belief, I think, in time, hopefully more and more people will have mental skills, Coach, to get the most out of themselves. And I think the mindset, so often I speak to these people on these podcasts, successful people, and they say how critical that mindset is and that development of the mindset, and that's something that I'm now very mindful of, the continuation of that journey for me as an individual but also imparting that on my children. I think it's just so critical. So Mm. uh, one of the things I'm most passionate about is helping people become their best version and I think no doubt, You're doing that for many, many people, and I think sharing your learnings, the coaching work you do, all backed by science and and everything else I think is fantastic. So there's no doubt you're very, very talented, and uh, you talk about your why your purpose. I, I, I sense that is very strong. You're having a big impact, so I'm super grateful that, again, Tara, we've had some time to hang out today further to last week and uh, explore some of these things. So uh, I'm buzzing and and very appreciative of of your time.
0: Thank you so much, Sean. And I can't wait to hear this podcast when it's out.
1: (laughs) No, fantastic. So thanks so much again. Thanks. Thanks again for tuning in to part one and part two of the Peak Brain Performance Podcast with Dr. Tara Swart. Uh, I know for certain that I got a bunch out of it. I was inspired and uh, I'm already sort of starting to execute some of the things that she talked about. So really hope that you got some value uh, through the, the two podcasts. Um, and again, if you think of anyone else in your network that might enjoy or appreciate some of these learnings, please feel free to pass on. And alternatively, uh, feel free to subscribe or follow us on the likes of the iTunes Podcast Store. Or your uh, preferred channel, but um, yeah, really appreciate you giving up your time to listen to some of these takeaways, and I'm confident that uh, everyone's hopefully got some value through that process.